I woke up early to get in one last time of playing tennis with my kids before we packed up our family from uh, our house in Michigan uh, to come back to Portland for another school year, another work year. Uh, It was a busy day. Jory, seven of our kids, and myself were there. And the first thing we had to do is get all the luggage out to the cars. We had, including carry-on bags, a car seat for Erica, two tennis bags. We had 27 pieces of luggage. Um, Closing up our house was a big deal. Uh, The house was not winterized, and uh, so we had to be very careful. Get everything cleaned, and uh, it shut up tight before we left. One, one year, my son said, hey, Dad, can I, can I stay and can I close up? I said, okay. And, uh, but he left one window cracked. Uh, when we got back uh, the next year, there were cobwebs and bugs, and uh, we had mold going up our whitewashed walls, and we had uh, furry mold on our beds, uh, even green mold in our refrigerator. It was just a mess. Uh, so I left some instructions for our kids that were, were not coming with us, and I took off with the other kids for the tennis court. When I got back, I could see that squeezing in a game of tennis had been a mistake. Other than Jory, nobody had done a thing. So I got everybody on task and started working as hard as I could. We had to leave by 4 p.m. Uh, to get to Chicago O'Hare Airport uh, two hours ahead of our flight. Now, in Chicago, from where we live, it's about an hour and a half to get to O'Hare in the middle of the night. Daytime, you've got to allow three hours. Uh, so we got to 4 o'clock, and we weren't ready. And I started getting really stressed, and, and by then, you know, in the hot, humid uh, temperature of, of Michigan, I was sweating from head to toe, working faster and faster. By 4.15... Uh, I was just really stressed. I'm thinking, why didn't I tell everybody we have to leave by 3 p.m.? By 4.30, I was a wreck, and we finally all got in the, uh, get ready to go, and uh, I thought, we'll never make it. Well, the first half hour went pretty well, and uh, I was doing 75 miles per hour. Uh, 75 in Portland is fast. In Chicago, it's not even competitive. People just fly by you, and I never see anybody get a ticket. Not even sure they have police in Chicago. And, uh, well, then when we hit the Chicago city limits, everything slowed to like five miles per hour, bumper to bumper. And I thought, if this continues, we'll never make it. Well, it did continue almost all the way to the airport. Uh, We finally got there, 50 minutes to spare. I thought, well, we still have a shot. And we all crawled off the shuttle bus from the car rental and uh, got in line. And I got up, we got up to the ticket agent and she said, uh, how many in your party? I said, nine. She said, there's no way I can get nine of you and your bags processed out to the plane on time. You're too late. I nearly died. All that work, all day long, and we were too late. Have you ever been too late for a flight? Too late for an appointment? Too late for a wedding? Too late to get tickets? Too late to finish an assignment? 
Too late to call girl for a dance? On Judgment Day, we will all stand before Christ to give an accounting of our lives. If we have not given our life to Christ before that day, it will be too late. The writer of Proverbs says, A man who remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. He says that if we ignore God's warnings, there will come a time when it is too late to turn to God. So I want to ask a question today. Is there a point when it is too late to turn to God? Is there a point when it is too late for a country to turn to God? This is the 11th in a series of messages called Navigating Uncertainty. I'm talking about how to navigate the uncertainty of our times and how to help other people through these difficult times. We have a pandemic, an economic lockdown, riots and election, and the post-election. The tumult we have gone through the last eight months has left us all drained. Whether you're a teenager or in your 90s, single, married, divorced or widowed, a follower of Christ or not, you can feel the tumult in our country. To answer our question, we turn to the last chapters of Jeremiah and the book of Lamentations. The prophet has warned the people of Judah for 45 years that if they do not turn back to God, they will be taken into exile to Babylon. They don't listen, so finally God says, time's up. You're too late. The Babylonians come in, they burn Jerusalem to the ground, they tear down the walls, they destroy the temple, the palace, all the important government buildings. The destruction of Jerusalem and Judah at the hands of the Babylonians is such an important event in the life of Judah that several biblical writers record it. Jeremiah, obviously, the writer of Kings, devotes 2 Kings 25 to the fall of Jerusalem. The writer of Chronicles does the same in 2 Chronicles 36. He writes, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through His messengers. Jeremiah would be one of them again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised His words. Remember how much much they rejected Jeremiah? And scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against His people and there was no remedy. So again, I ask the question, is there a point when it is too late to turn to God? I want to say three things in answer to this question. First, if we disregard God, we eventually bring misery on ourselves. The people hear Jeremiah's warning that they're going to be in trouble if they don't turn to God, but they do not believe him. They think that because God's temple is in Jerusalem and they're God's chosen people, they're safe. Jeremiah writes, The kings of the earth did not believe, nor did any of the world's people, that the enemies and foes could enter the gates of Jerusalem. Now turn to Lamentations. If you have a Bible, I want to tell you something about Lamentations that you probably don't know. 
There's no statement in the book about who wrote it. Many books start off and say, you know, I, Luke, wrote this or whatever. Um, so who wrote it? Well, most reasonable people agree that Jeremiah is the most knowledgeable about Judah and Jerusalem and has the most passion for it, so clearly he was the author. So really, Jeremiah is 52, book, 52 chapters plus five chapters of Lamentations. It's a 57-chapter book. Lamentations is the postlude. Now, Lamentations has five chapters. The first, second, fourth, and fifth have 22 verses. The third chapter has 66 verses. There are 12 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and the first, second, fourth, and fifth chapters, the first verse begins with Aleph, second verse begins with Abate, third verse begins with Gimel, on to the last verse beginning with a Tau. The middle chapter, the first three verses begin with an Aleph, second three with Abate, last, last three verses with a Tau. Why does Jeremiah do this? Why this symmetry? Is he trying to be cute? No, he's trying to provide us with a memory device so we'll never forget what happens when we disregard God. He wants us to remember the victims. He wants to preserve this for us so when we're tempted... We're not likely to say, oh, nobody will catch me. No one will know I had this affair. No one will find out I charged a client too much. Who would, who would discover it? The fall of Jerusalem in 586 is the low point in Jewish history. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. They camped outside the city and built siege works all around it. By the ninth day of the fourth month, so this is 18 months later, the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. They had Jerusalem surrounded, so people ran out of food. <clears throat> Where's the good life? For 18 months, Jerusalem is under siege. Many of the people died of starvation. Then the city wall was broken through, and the whole army fled. But the Babylonian army pursued King Zedekiah and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. Remember, Jeremiah said, if you flee the Babylonians, you'll be killed. All his soldiers were separated from him and scattered. And he was captured. Here's what happened to Zedekiah. He was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah, in the land of Hamath where he pronounced sentence on him. There at Riblah, the king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. He also killed all the officials, all the cabinet. Then he put out Zedekiah's eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon, where he put him in prison until the day of his death. It doesn't get worse than this. When the Babylonians finally break through the wall, they kill many of the city's inhabitants and deport most of the leaders and skilled people. They leave behind the poor and unskilled to tend the farms and the injured soldiers. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Everything important, every important building 
he burned down. The whole Babylonian army under the commander of the imperial guard broke down all the walls around Jerusalem. Everything of importance is destroyed. Like the people of Judah, if we stubbornly refuse to turn to God, we will bring misery on ourselves. Do you remember when God sent the plague on the people of Egypt? And uh, He sends a plague of frogs to the land. Uh, The text says that Aaron stretches out his uh, hand over uh, the land, and frogs came up and covered the land. Well, Pharaoh calls for Moses to come to him and says, Would you please pray to your God to remove these frogs? And here's Pharaoh's answer. Or Moses' answer, I leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs. Pharaoh says, tomorrow. Can you believe it? He says, just give me one more night with the frogs. I mean, it's crazy. But we really do the same thing. We say, God, I want to come back to you. And God says, when? We say, tomorrow. Don't waste one more day. Turn to Christ today. Now look at Lamentations 1. When Jeremiah writes this from Jerusalem after the city has been devastated. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she who once was great among the nations. What an appropriate description of what it's like after we've sinned. When you sin and suffer the consequences, you never have a crowd of people around you. The people who are with you in the good times are nowhere to be found when the fun and games stop. Bitterly, she weeps at night. Tears are upon her cheeks. Among all her lovers, there is none to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her, and they have become her enemies. Her foes have become her masters. Her enemies are at ease. The Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. Her children have gone into exile, captive before the foe. All the splendor has departed from the daughter of Zion. When we face tough times, we tend to say, Hey, God, why are you punishing me? But Jeremiah wants us to understand that when we sin, it's not so much God punishing us, but us bringing misery on ourselves. Now, this is what the Lord, God Almighty, the God of Israel says. Why bring such great disaster on yourselves by cutting off from Judah the men and women, the children and infants, and so leave yourselves without a remnant? Why provoke me to anger with what your hands have made? Remember, they made false idols, burning incense to other gods in Egypt where you have come to live. Um, where are we? Um, when we face time, uh, tough times, we, uh, we're likely to say God's punishing us, but Jeremiah says, no, you're bringing misery on yourselves. Uh, in C.S. Lewis' Narnia tale, the horse and his boy, uh, the wicked uh, prince Rabadash invades Narnia in order to capture Queen Susan. Susan's one of the four children Uh, that uh, discovers Narnia through the London wardrobe. And Rabadash is captured, and he's ranting and raving. He says, I want Susan. 
And then all of a sudden, Aslan, the, the great lion, the Christ figure appears, and he's startled by how massive he is. Rabadash, said Aslan, take heed. Your doom is very near, but you may still avoid it. So is there a point when it's too late to turn to God? He's saying, it's not too late, Rabadash. You can still avoid it. Forget your pride. What have you to be proud of? And your anger, who has done you wrong? And accept the mercy of these good kings. Uh, Susan is one of them. Let the skies fall, shrieked Rabadash. Let the earth gape. Let blood and fire obliterate the world. But be sure I will never desist till I have dragged to my palace by her hair the barbarian queen, the daughter of dogs. He's talking about Queen Susan. Then Aslan speaks. The hour has struck, said Aslan, and Rabadash saw to his supreme horror that everyone had begun to laugh. He turned into a donkey. Do you remember how Nebuchadnezzar uh, uh, turning into an animal that grazed the field? But Aslan's gracious with Rabadash. He says, you can still regain your human form if you stay in your country and never again invade Narnia. But if you come back again, you'll become a donkey forever. If we refuse to repent, we bring misery on ourselves. Second, God's grace is always available to us, but if we harden ourselves long enough, a time may come when we don't want God's grace. Look at the final lines of lamentation. Last two verses. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. He ends not with a statement, but a question. Will God always be angry with us? He asks the question we're asking today. Is there a point when it's too late to turn to God? When God will be angry with us forever. In his book, Finding God in Unexpected Places, Philip Yancey tells the story of a friend who came to him um, telling him he was planning on leaving his wife of, of 15 years of marriage. Uh, he had found a younger, prettier woman, and he said it makes him feel alive like he hadn't felt in years. He knew he was inflicting permanent damage on his wife and three children, but he couldn't resist this new woman. Then he drops a, a bombshell on Yancey. He says, the reason I wanted to see you tonight was to ask you a question. Do you think God can forgive something as awful as I'm about to do? Now, if you've been in the church long, you know that God is gracious and forgiving. So how do you dissuade someone from doing something terrible when they already know forgiveness is just around the corner? I mean, why not do anything we want? We know God will forgive us. Here's what Yancey told his friends, and it's very insightful. Can God forgive you? Of course. Read about David, Peter, and Paul. God builds His kingdom on the backs of people who murder commit adultery, deny Him, and persecute His followers. But because of Christ's death on the cross, forgiveness is now our problem, not God's. What we have to go through to commit sin distances us from God. 
We change in the very act of rebellion, and there is no guarantee we will come back. You ask me about forgiveness now, but will you even want it later, especially if it involves repentance? Through Christ's death on the cross, God can always grant us forgiveness because all sin has been paid for. Justice has been met. But if you harden your heart long enough, you may come to a place where you don't want God's forgiveness. God takes a risk by announcing forgiveness in advance, but the scandal of His grace transfers the risk to us. God will always listen to our cry for forgiveness, but there may come a point when we no longer want it because we don't want to give up our sin. Is there a point when it's too late to turn to God? The answer is yes and no. No, because of Christ's death on the cross, God can always forgive us. Sin has been paid for. But yes, if you put off a decision to give your life to Christ long enough, you may harden your heart so you're no longer interested in coming to Christ. It's not too late, but don't wait another minute. Third, if you want to make sure you're not too late to turn to God, focus on God's love, compassion, and faithfulness. In the midst of the rubble in Jerusalem, after the people have been taken into exile, Jeremiah writes what I think are his greatest words. Now, I've told you, Jeremiah has a lot of famous passages, but I would rank this one number one. And this is not it yet. He's just warming up. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. The walls have been torn down. The city's been burned to the ground. Many have been killed, many of his friends, and people have been taken into exile. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. And now here begins what I think is his greatest verse. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. Because we realize how much God's loved us, we're not consumed by grief. When I'm down, if I focus on the things that are troubles in my life, I will get uh, more depressed every time. But if I focus on how incredible God's love is, I'm not consumed by my grief. Now, Jeremiah goes on. This is still part of the verse. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. For 45 years, Jeremiah tells the people of Judah, you need to turn back to God or you're going to be killed or taken into exile. Then he watches the Babylonian army destroy the wall of Jerusalem, boulder by boulder, burn the temple down, all the important government buildings. How can he handle the devastation? He looks for God's compassions, which are new every morning. Do you do that? When you are down, make that your practice. Look for God's compassions every morning. You'll see them, evidence that He loves you. A number of years ago, our 18-year-old son, Joel, a senior year in high school, went to St. Louis for the national clay uh, tournament. Before he left, he said, Dad, my wrist is hurting, but I think I'll be fine. 
Well, when he got there and he was warming up before his first round match, it was really bad pain. So I went to the trainer and the trainer wrapped it up really tight. Well, after his uh, first uh, round match, uh, he came to the trainer again and he introduced him to the orthopedist who was the team doctor for the St. Louis Cardinals. And he gave him an electrical stimulation treatment and a, a, re, a removable ta uh, cast. And both the orthopedist and the trainer uh, said, Joel, you should probably retire from the tournament. But you can go day by day. We'll come in tomorrow morning. We'll do the same treatment. And, and you can make your decision you know, as you go through the tournament. So the next morning, he did the same treatment, played his second round match, and got treatment after the match. And same thing happened on the third day. And... Uh, got through his, his match on the fourth, fourth round. In the fourth game, he was sliding on the clay and he hit a hole and uh, he rolled his ankle. He sprained it so badly that uh, uh, it swelled up uh, the size of an egg. Well, at that point, he was so, his injuries were so insurmountable that he retired from the tournament. It was very disappointing to him. But he realized God had been compassionate with him throughout that week. Uh, he had him working with, you know, the best uh, in, in a trainer and a, and a team doctor. I mean, you know, they worked with the likes of Andy Roddick and the St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, and God had been compassionate with him all through the week. If you want to rise above the tough times in your life, look for God's kindnesses to you. They will be there every morning. And then he finishes his verse, great is your faithfulness. When you're struggling, everything seems to be going wrong. You feel like giving up. Try reflecting on God's faithfulness. Hasn't he been faithful to you? I mean, these last eight months have been murder for all of us. But hasn't he been faithful to you in the midst of it? I know, I know about half of you have seen your incomes go down this last year. But hasn't God still been faithful? When I'm working through tough times, at home or at work, I try reflecting on God's blessings to me. And I realize how faithful He's been. Jeremiah ends this great text. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for Him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in Him, to the one who seeks Him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Jeremiah is willing to say, even though his country has been destroyed, he's lost many friends, he's still willing to say, the Lord is my portion. God is enough for me. Can you say that today? If you lose your family, your friends, your income, your house, your cars, everything that's near and dear to you, can you say, but I still have Christ and He's enough for me? Is there a point when it's too late to turn to God? Yes and no. No, God's forgiveness is always available because Christ died for all sins and it's readily available for us. But yes, if you harden your heart long enough, you may reach a point when you don't want God's forgiveness. So give your life to Christ today. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for these great words that you inspired Jeremiah to write. And Father, we want to tell you today that 
we believe in your steadfast love and your compassions that are new every morning and your faithfulness is great. And we believe that you are sovereign. And so we put our trust in you. We believe that you can work through our nation no matter what our nation does, whoever's leading it, you can work your sovereign purposes through it. You can work through us. And so we put our trust in you. I want to give you a moment to pray right now. If you've never committed your life to Christ, ask Him to come into your life, forgive your sins, and become your Lord. You pray. Lord God, thank you that you are sovereign and that you're faithful to us and your compassions are new every morning. We put our trust in you, in Jesus' name.